Section 25 of Great Men and Famous Women, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Great Men and Famous Women, Volume 1, by Charles F. Horn. Edward the Black Prince, by L. Drake, 1330-1376. Edward, Prince of Wales, commonly called the Black Prince, was born in 1330. He was the eldest son of Edward III, and a model of the highest virtues of his times, a loyal son, and a brave yet merciful warrior. He sailed with his father to attack the French in 1346, and though only sixteen, was knighted by the king, immediately on reaching France. He made a right good beginning, for he rode with a small force on a daring foray, and then distinguished himself at the taking of Caen, and in the engagement with the force, under Gondomar de Fay, which endeavoured to prevent the English army from crossing the Somme. King Edward and his small army, compelled to face a far larger French force, made some of the most daring and successful marches on record in the annals of warfare. At length they encamped in a forest, a little to the west of the small town of Crecy. The French army, outnumbering them some say as four, some say as twelve to one, was not far distant, but confident in his troops and himself, and animated by the memory of many triumphs, the English king resolved to make a stand. The field of Cresset, from the capabilities of the ground, was made choice of for the expected battle, and the plan being drawn out by Edward and his counsellors, the king, as the greatest and most chivalrous favour he could confer, determined to yield the place of danger and of honour to the prince, and in his own words, to let the day be his. To ensure his success, most of the famous knights were placed in the division which the black prince, as he was now called, from the sable suit of armour he usually wore, was to command, while the Earl of Warwick and the celebrated Sir John Shandos were ordered not to quit his side, but be ever ready to direct and aid him. Early on the morning of August 26, 1346, the trumpet sounded, and the army marched to take up the position which had been selected on the previous day. The ground was an irregular slope, looking toward the south and east, the quarters from which the army were expected. The prince's division, composed of 800 men-at-arms, 4,000 archers, and 6,000 Welsh foot, was stationed nearly at the bottom of the hill. The archers, as usual, in front, the light troops next, and then the men-at-arms, in the midst of whom was the prince himself, with twelve earls and lords as his staff. To the left of this, and higher on the slope, appeared the second division of about 7,000 men, commanded by the earls of Arundel, and Northampton. On a rising ground surmounted by a windmill, aloof from the rest, was King Edward himself, with twelve thousand men as a reserve. The wagons and baggage were in the rear of the prince, under the charge of a small body of archers, as the battle was to be fought entirely on foot, all the horses were also left with these. Mounted on a palfrey with a white staff in his hand, the king, with a smiling and cheerful countenance, rode from rank to rank. By noon he had passed through all the lines, exhorting the men to do their duty gallantly, and defend his honour and right. The soldiers now had permission to refresh themselves, while waiting the enemy's approach. They accordingly ate and drank at ease, and afterward lay down in ranks on the long grass, with their bows and steel caps beside them. Meantime the French army had approached very near. Four knights had ridden forward, and observed King Edward's plan of battle. When, having seen how fresh and vigorous the English troops appeared, they advised Philip, the French king, to delay the engagement till next day, by which time his troops, now hungry and wearied, would be refreshed. Philip at once saw the wisdom of his counsel, and one of his marshals immediately galloped to the front, and the other to the rear. 
halt your banners in the name of god the king and saint denis was the command given to the leaders the advanced troops instantly obeyed but the others pressed on hoping to be among the foremost this obliged the soldiers in front to move on again in vain the king commanded and the marshals threatened hurrying forward in disgraceful confusion the french passing through a small wood suddenly found themselves in the presence of the english the surprise caused the first line to fall back and thus increased the confusion the english soldiers now rose steadily from the grass and stood in fair and martial order on the hillside with the standard of the black prince in their front the sky had by this time become clouded a thunderstorm came on and torrents of rain soon fell slackening the string of the crossbows of the genoese archers who had advanced to break the firm front of the english bowmen the clouds cleared quickly away and the western sun soon shone out bright and clear full in the faces of the french at the moment the genoese drew their arbalists and commenced their discharge each english archer stepped forward a single pace as he took his bow from the case in which it had been protected from the rain and a flight of arrows fell among the genoese piercing their heads arms and faces and causing them instantly to retreat in confusion among the horsemen in their rear the passionate french king instead of trying to rally the fugitives at once ordered the men-at-arms to fall upon them the cavalry the heavy troops and the crossbowmen soon formed a wild and reeling crowd amid which the english poured a continued flight of unerring arrows and not a single bowstring was drawn in vain meantime the count of alencon dividing his men into two parties swept round on one side of this scene of confusion while the count of flanders did the same on the other side and avoiding the archers furiously attacked the men-at-arms around the prince england's chivalry headed by the gallant boy met the impetuous charge with equal valour and with greater success and as each headlong effort of the french deranged the ranks for a moment they were formed anew each man fighting where he stood none quitting his place to make a prisoner while growing piles of dead told of their courage and vigour the two counts were slain and terror began to spread through their troops a large body of german cavalry now bore down on the prince's archers and in spite of the terrible flight of arrows cut their way through and charged the men-at-arms by this time nearly forty thousand men were pressing round the little english phalanx but the combat was renewed hand to hand with more energy than ever while the earls of northampton and arundel moved up with their division to repel the tremendous attack king edward still remained with his powerful reserve viewing the battle from the windmill above the earl of warwick now called a knight named thomas of norwich and dispatched him to the king sir thomas demanded edward is my son killed or overthrown or wounded beyond help not so my liege answered the knight yet he is in a rude shock of arms and much does he need your aid go back sir thomas to those who sent you rejoined the king and tell them from me that whatever happens to require no aid from me so long as my son is in life tell them also that i command them to let the boy win his spurs for god willing the day shall be his and the honour shall rest with him and those into whose charge i have given him the prince and those around him seemed inspired with fresh courage by this message and efforts surpassing all that had preceded were made by the english soldiers the french men-at-arms as they still dashed down on the ranks met the same fate as their predecessors and hurled wounded from their dying horses were thrust through the short lances of the half-armed welshmen who rushed hither and thither through the midst of the fight charles of luxembourg who led the german cavalry seeing his banner down his friends slain his troops routed and himself wounded severely in three places fled casting off his rich surcoat to avoid recognition the prince's father 
the veteran king of bohemia was seated on horseback at a little distance from the fight the old man had fought in almost every quarter of europe but though still full of valour he was now blind unable himself to mark the progress of the fight he continued to inquire anxiously and soon discovered that the day was lost my son demanded the veteran monarch of his attendants my son can you still see my son the king of the romans is not in sight sire was the reply but doubtless he is somewhere engaged in the melee lords continued the old king drawing his own conclusions from what he heard and resolved not to quit the field alive lords you are my vassals my friends and my companions and on this day i command and beseech you to lead me forward so far that i may deal one blow of my sword in the battle they linked their horses bridles to one another and placing their venerable lord in the centre galloped down into the field entering the thickest strife they advanced directly against the prince of wales here the blind monarch was seen fighting valiantly for some time but at length his banner went down next day he was found dead on the field of cressay his friends around him their horses still linked to each other by the bridles it was growing dark ere the angry philip could force his way through the confusion he had himself chiefly caused by the imprudent command he gave at the commencement of the battle the unremitting arrows of the english still continued to pour like hail and his followers fell thickly around him many fled leaving him to his fate and presently his own horse was killed by an arrow one of his attendants john of hanault who had remained by his side the whole day mounted him on one of his own charges and entreated him to quit the field philip refused and making his way into the thickest battle fought for some time with great courage at length his troops almost annihilated himself wounded in two places he suffered john to half force him from the field and with a few of his lords and only sixty men-at-arms reached his nearest castle of broy in safety at midnight he again set out and did not slacken his flight till he reached amiens the gallant prince of wales still held his station firmly in the battle the utmost efforts of the french had not made him yield a single step by degrees as night fell the assailants decreased in numbers the banners disappeared and the shouts of the knights and the clang of arms died away silence at last crept over the field and told that victory was completed by the flight of the enemy torches were then lighted in immense numbers along the english lines to dispel the darkness king edward now first quitted his station on the hill he hastily sought his conquering boy and clasped him proudly to his bosom god give you perseverance in your course my child cried the king as he still held him you are indeed my son nobly have you acquitted yourself and worthy are you of the place you hold the youthful hero had hitherto in the excitement and energy of the battle felt only the necessity of immense exertion and had been unmindful of all but the immediate efforts of the moment but now the thought of his great victory which his father's praise seemed first to bring fully to his mind overcame him and he sank on his knees before the king and entreated his blessing after a day of such glory and peril and thus ended the battle of cressy the prince had now fully established his character as a warrior two or three years afterward he showed that he could display equal courage at sea as on land this was in an engagement with the spaniards peter the cruel as he was termed was at that time king of castile and encouraged to a great extent the pirates who infested the english seas his own fleet even in passing through the british channel had captured a number of english merchantmen returning from bordeaux and after putting into sloughs were preparing to sail back in triumph with the prizes and merchandise king edward determined to oppose their return and collected his fleet off the coast of sussex near winchelsea when he heard that the spaniards were about putting to sea he immediately embarked to command the expedition in person 
the black prince now in his twentieth year accompanied him and commanded one of the largest vessels the day on which the spanish fleet would make its appearance had been nicely calculated edward waited impatiently for its approach and to beguile the time made the musicians play an air which the famous chandos who was now with him had brought from germany during the concert the king from time to time turned his eye to the watcher at the masthead in a short time the music was interrupted by the cry of a sail ordering wine to be brought edward drank one cup with his knights and throwing off the cap he had worn till now put on his cask and closed his visor for the day the spanish ships came on in gallant trim the number of fighting men which they contained was compared with the english as ten to one and their vessels were of a much greater size they had also large wooden towers on board filled with crossbowmen and were further provided with immense bars of iron with which to sink the ships of their opponents they approached with their tops filled with crossbowmen and engineers the decks covered with men-at-arms and with the banners and pennons of different knights and commanders flying from every mast they came up in order of battle a few hours before night king edward immediately steered direct against a large spanish ship endeavouring according to the custom of ancient naval warfare to run her down with his prow the vessel which was much superior to his own in magnitude withstood the tremendous shock both ships recoiling from each other the king now found his ship had sprung a leak and was sinking fast in the confusion the spanish vessel passed on but edward immediately ordering his ship to be lashed to another of the enemy after a desperate struggle made himself master of a sound vessel the battle now raged on all sides showers of bolts and quarrels from the crossbows and immense stones hurled by powerful engines were poured upon the english the black prince imitating the example of his father had fixed on one of the largest ships of the enemy but while steering toward her the missiles she discharged pierced his own vessel in several places the speedy capture of his enemy was now necessary for as he came alongside his bark was absolutely sinking the sides of his opponent's vessel being much bigger than his own rendered the attempt very hazardous and while sword in hand he attempted to force his way bolts and arrows poured on his head from every quarter the earl of lancaster sweeping by to engage one of the enemy saw the situation of the prince and immediately dashed to the other side of the antagonist and after a fierce but short struggle the spanish ship remained in the hands of the prince and scarcely had he and his crew left their own vessel before she filled and went down twenty-four of the enemy's ships had by this time been captured the rest were sunk or in full flight and night having fallen king edward measured back the short distance to the shore father and son then mounting horse rode to the abbey of winchelsea where queen philippa had been left and soon turned the suspense she had suffered since darkness had hidden the battle from her sight into joy and gratitude the french king philip was now dead and had been succeeded by his eldest son john some proceedings on the part of the new monarch were regarded as a signal to break the truce which had subsisted for a short time between the english and the french various displays of hostilities followed and many negotiations were entered into without success the black prince being appointed captain-general sailed for bordeaux in august thirteen fifty five and arrived there after an easy passage his first movements were always successful and even when winter set in the judicious manner in which he employed his troops enabled him to add five fortified towns and seventeen castles to the english possessions spring and summer passed by the prince still continuing active at length the french king collected an immense army and marched to intercept him though well aware that john was endeavouring to cut off his retreat the black prince was ignorant of the exact position of the french army until one day a small foraging party fell in with a troop of three hundred horsemen who pursuing the little band across some bushes 
suddenly found themselves under the banner of the black prince after a few blows they surrendered and from them the prince learned that king john was a day's march in advance of them a party dispatched to reconnaitre brought back intelligence that an army of eight times his force lay between him and poitiers though without fear the prince felt all the difficulties of his situation yet his simple reply was god be our help now let us think how we may fight them to the best advantage at high ground commanding the country towards poitiers defended by the hedges of a vineyard and accessible from the city only by a hollow way scarcely wide enough to admit four men abreast presented to him a most defensible position here he encamped and early next morning disposed his troops for battle he dismounted his whole force placed a body of archers drawn up in the form of a harrow in front the men-at-arms behind and stationed strong bodies of bowmen along the hedges on each side of the hollow way thus while climbing the hill the french would be exposed to the galling flights of arrows while the nature of the ground would further render their superiority in numbers of little avail the french host now began to advance yet as its ocean of waving plumes rolled up the hill the prince in the same firm tone which had declared the day before that england should never have to pay his ransom now spoke the hope of victory three hundred chosen horsemen soon reached the narrow way and putting their horses at full gallop poured in to charge the harrow of archers the instant they were completely within the banks the english bowmen along the hedges poured a flight of arrows which threw them at once into confusion the bodies of the slain men and horses soon blocked up the way but a considerable number forcing a path through every obstacle nearly approached the first line of archers a gallant knight named james audley with his four squires rushed against them and thus almost single-handed he fought during the whole day hewing a path through the thickest of the foe until late in the evening when covered with many wounds and fainting from loss of blood he was borne from the field meantime the shower of arrows continued to pour death while the english men-at-arms passing between the lines of the archers drove back the foremost of the enemy and the hollow soon became one scene of carnage one of edward's officers named the captal de bouche at the same time issued from a woody ravine situated near the foot of the hill where with three hundred men-at-arms and three hundred archers on horseback he had lain concealed and attacked the flank of one of the divisions of the french army commanded by the dauphin as it commenced the ascent this with the confusion in front and a rumour that part of the army was beaten carried terror into the rear ranks and vast numbers who had hardly seen an enemy galloped madly from the field the arrows discharged by the horse archers now began to tell on the front line of the enemy the quick eye of sir john chandos marked it waver and open now sir he exclaimed turning to the prince ride forward and the day is yours let us charge right upon the king of france for there lies the fate of the day his courage i know well will not let him fly but he shall be well encountered on on chandos replied the prince you shall not see me tread one step back but ever in advance bear on my banner god and saint george be with us the horses had been kept in readiness and each man now springing into saddle the army bore down on the enemy with levelled lances the capital de bouche forcing his way onward to regain the main body the hostile forces met with a terrible shock while the cries of denis mountjoy st george guienne mingled with the clashing of steel the shivering of lances and the sound of the galloping steeds the sight of the conflict struck terror into a body of sixteen thousand men who had not yet drawn a sword panic seemed to seize them and these fresh troops instead of aiding their companions fled disgracefully with their commander the duke of orleans this probably decided the day king john was now seen advancing with his reserve in numbers still double the force of the english at the commencement of the battle he saw his nobles flying 
but though indignant felt no alarm then dismounting with all his men he led them battle-axe in hand against the english charge the black armour of the young leader of the english rendered him also conspicuous and while the french king did feats of valour enough to win twenty battles if courage could have done all the prince was seen raging like a young lion amid the thickest of the enemy night to night and hand to hand the battle was now fought the french were driven back step by step till john found himself nearly at the gates of poitiers now shut against him while however the oriflame waved over his head he would not believe the day lost but at length it went down and his hopes fell with it surrounded on every side by foes eager to make him a prisoner he still wielded his battle-axe clearing at each stroke the space around him and his little son who had accompanied him through the fatal field a king of artois of gigantic height who had been outlawed and had taken service with england seeing that the monarch's life would be lost if he protracted his resistance suddenly rushed into the circle yield sire yield he exclaimed in french who art thou inquired john i am denis de mortbeck poor knight of artois answered the outlaw but now in the service of england because a banished man from my own country well i yield me to you cried the king giving him a sign of surrender his right gauntlet by this time nothing was seen but dead and dying on the field with groups of prisoners and parties of fugitives escaping over the distant country the prince by the advice of chandos now pitched his banner on a high spot and while the trumpet sounded a recall to the standard he dismounted and embracing his helmet took a draught of wine with the band of knights who had accompanied him throughout the arduous day the unfortunate french king was soon brought to him by the earl of warwick and lord cobham the prince received his vanquished adversary with deep and touching respect bending his knee before john he called for wine and with his own hands presented the cup to the unhappy king by midday the battle was over but as the pursuing parties did not return till evening it was only then that the prince learned the greatness of his victory with eight thousand men he had vanquished more than sixty thousand and the captives were double the number of the conquerors at night a sumptuous entertainment was served in the tent of the black prince to the king of france and the principal prisoners john his son and six of his chief nobles were seated at a table raised higher than the rest but no place was reserved for the prince himself great was the surprise when the victor appeared to officiate as page this in the days of chivalry implied no degradation though it showed the generous humility of the young hero john repeatedly entreated the prince to seat himself beside him and could scarcely be persuaded to taste the food while his vanquisher remained standing or handed him the cup on bended knee the respectful manner in which the prince conducted himself and the feeling he expressed for the misfortunes of his foe so touched john that at last the tears burst from his eyes and mingled with the marks of blood on his cheeks the example of their leader was followed throughout the english camp every one treating his prisoners as friends and admitting them to ransom on terms named in most cases by the vanquished themselves after this event the prince again distinguished himself in france for the claims of his father which the treaty had in part recognised were again disputed many battles were fought and much negotiation was carried on extending over several years while in the midst of these harassments the prince who had long been ill became worse his surgeons advised his return to england he complied but day after day his strength failed him and fainting fits of long continuance often led those around him to suppose him dead at length on sunday june the eighth thirteen seventy six he closed a life which for years had been one sad scene of suffering he was interred with due pomp in canterbury cathedral his favourite suit of black armour being suspended over his tomb thus scarcely past his prime 
died the valiant and gentle prince of wales the flower of all chivalry in the world at that time end of section twenty five